Hi, Hokies, and welcome to another episode of Careers for Engineers, the show where we interview amazing Hokie engineering alumni and get all the deets on how they got to where they are. I'm Nikki Hazuda. And I'm Megan Reese. And today we've got Maria Bothwell, CEO of Toppler Associates, a future-focused strategic consulting and advisory firm right here in Virginia. She's got her BS in industrial engineering and operations research and an MBA both from Virginia Tech. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. Happy to be here, Megan and Nikki. So, of course, we've got to ask you the obvious question. What is it that you do? What is Toffler Associates? And what does it mean to be future focused, especially considering the rapid pace of technology, society and justice? Uh, so Toffler Associates was founded by futurist Alvin Toffler. Um, Alvin wrote about 15 books. Um, his first one published in 1970 was published all over the world. It was called Future Shock. And in essence, he sort of founded the field of that acknowledgement that the future technology society is changing at a pace that's increasing and that humans are going to become overwhelmed by the amount of change and that you've got to approach that amount of change, you know, with a, a, thoughtful process, but that there are ways to adapt to it. And so he founded our firm in the mid nineties um, and helped create these methodologies that we use that look into uh, five, 10, 15, sometimes even 30 years into the future to really understand what are those uncertainties and then how do we work that back into investment decisions today for organizations? So I think the degree you initially received in 1990 has changed. I do know though that your degree is actually, its home is in industrial and systems engineering. So it, that's one of those majors, right? That our students go into so many different categories of work, mm -hmm. uh, which you've clearly done yourself. So can you kind of tell us how you got from manufacturing engineer to CEO? Um, so when I started engineering, I was actually going to go to law school. Um, and engineering education is a great education. And that's all it was to me. It was a bachelor's degree. I was really good at math and science. And um, it was about problem solving and logic and, and understanding what, you know, what are the various variables out there. When I, at the time I was a senior, I concluded I did not want to go to law school. And I was a little bit um, on the fence as to what I what I was going to do next. I knew I needed a job, and I sort of was late in that decision um, because I had decided not to take a job I had actually accepted that would have led into the law degree. Um, so, I, I my the job that I got was a manufacturing engineering job, and it was sort of I took what I got. Um, sure. <laughs> into my senior year, I was about to graduate. So I took what I got. I did it for a couple of years and went to grad school, you know, when I could fit it in. Um, and when I was leaving grad school, I was interviewing, I, I concluded, I love manufacturing. I love sort of that, that aspect, but it wasn't me for a career. It was, it was too narrow. I'm a person that likes lots of different challenges all the time. And that's when I switched to consulting and started my consulting career with EY in Atlanta, management consulting. And it applied, you know, almost every aspect of the problem solving discipline of an engineering degree. I did not, I didn't necessarily use the technical elements because you don't need that in the real world for most jobs. But the problem solving aspects, the, the questions, the curiosity, um, those were all really relevant. 
And the consulting work I did still relied, it was process improvement, it was process re-engineering, it was looking at an organization from strategy all the way to execution to understand, are they organized in a way that, that they could actually achieve their mission? Um, and I got a lot of good training along the way too. Yeah, I love what you said about problem solving because it's so necessary in any field that you go into. 100%. And the, the thing that I, when I was in school, they were, we did less of. Now, Virginia Tech and other engineering schools do a lot more collaborative problem solving mm -hmm. and they get collaborative teams from day one. When I was there, we probably didn't do that till junior or senior year where you'd have, oh, and wow. certainly not multidisciplinary teams. It would have only been within your degree. Um, and, you know, real life, you are working with people that have all different backgrounds across an organization. Um, not all are other engineers, not all have math brains. So like I think of my firm right now, I hire more people that have political science or history or masters in cybersecurity or PhDs in economics than I do engineers. And I have a handful of engineers, but like, you know, there are lots of other ways to apply creativity to problem solving and you need the, the different disciplines and the different ways of thinking and approaching sort of the world um, to help do a best solution. That's so true. Um, yeah, so about problem solving and working in teams, I'm not exactly sure I wanna be a CEO just yet, but there's definitely time to figure that out. Um, but there are definitely aspiring Hokie engineers who will be working in teams both now and when they graduate. And even though, even those who will go on to start their own companies, what experiences have you had throughout your career that you feel best prepared you for where you are today? And are any of those experiences, do you wish you had them earlier? I, I love that question. And I think, um, well, first of all, I never aspired to be a CEO. Ever. <laughs> Even when I was accepting the job, I was thinking, <laughs> do I really want this job? So, so that's, you know, some, some people obviously want aspire to it from the very beginning. So, you know, right. I, I was one that I looked at opportunities when they arose. I kept myself very open to possibilities, which led me into lots of different aspects of my career and probably gave me more opportunities um, um, because I was open to it versus being too narrowly focused. And I, and I would say that's one thing that I would strongly encourage is don't get hung up on uh, that you're making a decision for the rest of your life. Any decision you're making is for really the next sort of six months to a couple of years at best. And, um, and you're going to meet people, you're going to get exposed to different work environments. Some are going to be more interesting than others. And that then helps create that pull to maybe the next thing you do or the next thing you do. And a lot of what you hear in organizations is not about a career ladder. It's about a career jungle gym and the importance of that jungle gym that you're picking up, you know, different, um, understanding maybe over in marketing or maybe over in operations or maybe in R and D, but that you're pulling those experiences into a more holistic view of what your organization might be doing and producing a value. And so those are the things to me that, that make it then easier, I guess, to be a CEO, um, because you really, you get a well-rounded view of, um, a company that aspect of teams. I'm a natural relationship person and I know a lot of people are not. So I sort of take that for granted and, um, and because it just comes so easy to me. Um, that's one thing I would say, if you are not a natural relationship person, make that a priority. Um, 
And, and what I mean by that doesn't mean you have to be best friends with everybody you encounter, but that you are looking to um, learn about them and with a sincere interest to learn about them and what makes them tick and what jazzes them when you're working with them. And so together, you know, you're able to, you know, make magic. So Maria, I've interviewed quite a few folks um, over the years, including our very own Dr. Watford, who's, you know, a pioneer in engineering education. Um, and she's definitely one of those people, uh, maybe like yourself, who've dealt with some pretty obnoxious experiences as women in engineering. Um, you know, <laughs> we're putting that mildly, right? Um, so, you know, as a young woman at Virginia Tech, whether, you know, it's in your engineering classes or even when you graduated, you know, what was your experience like and what has it been like? Um, so, yeah, the 80s and 90s were not a kind to women in and technology yeah. and um we didn't belong and in fact when i started um at virginia tech my advisor told me that <laughs> um and i had an uncle who was an architect that i worshipped and when i told him i was going to engineering school he asked me why would i waste my time i'm going to drop out within a year so this you know it, it came from loved ones as well as you know professors advisors um and the workforce and um it made me have a chip on my shoulder and want to prove them all wrong that I was going to graduate. And um, I even sent my uncle a little Xerox of my, back then, you know, Xerox of my degree with a nasty note on it to him. <laughs> the OG Xerox. <laughs> After I graduated. Um, and he was actually very proud of me at the end of the day, but very discouraging at the beginning. I And my early jobs, it continued through the 90s. And I think I was, you know, I thank my older brother who picked on me as a child um, because I had a very thick skin and um, learned to not not take things overly personally. You couldn't. I mean, you couldn't. If you did, you'd, you'd never make it. You'd never be able to do your job, whether that was schooling or work. And um, I... I certainly have sympathy for for women today because it should not be acceptable for anyone to treat them that way. But I also think we're a little oversensitive too, and and you know sometimes we have to just tell somebody to bug off or or ignore them and move on to the people that we can work with, and and make that choice. It's our choice whether we want to stay in that environment or not, and and we can we can make that choice to lose it or to leave it as a leader now i certainly don't tolerate that for my men and women and i've had men come to me with similar problems of harassment from clients or others and so to me it's i'm just as sensitive to their issues as i am to the younger women that work for me as well i appreciate you you know sharing that it's always hard to hear regardless of you know how old the person is sharing the story to hear that like family is discouraging of like what you want to do in life it doesn't matter if you want to be like a literally a circus clown like why can't you just be like you do you and yeah. like achieve your dreams you know and and like you were saying you know it's just a decision for the next couple of months quite frankly so like don't sweat it well and i mean certain lines there are still lines <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are some that we may get oversensitive. I, I had one experience when I was, it was probably that within that first year or two of being out of school and the, the, um, one of the senior executives at the company I worked at, um, we were doing a, a, a customer site visit tour and I was responsible for the clean room part of the tour. And 
I was maybe 23, 24. And when we finished the tour, or when I finished that part with the customer, this executive said, oh, she's not only cute, she's smart too. And I was in shock. I was horribly embarrassed. Um, and then they moved on. And later that day, right. I went home and I called my mom so upset. Like, should I say something? Should I go to HR? Like, I was just really upset about this whole thing. And my mom said, um, tell me about the guy. And I told her, and he was an older fella. You know, he was probably in his 60s at the time. And this would have been like 1991. And she said, Maria, that's just, to him, that was a compliment. You, you got, like, try to not take that. To him, he was complimenting you. Yes, it's offensive. Go to work tomorrow and shut up. <laughs> and, I, and she was right. Like, once she put that perspective on, I realized he didn't, he didn't mean it bad in any way. Yes, it was bad. He didn't mean it bad. I wanted him to know it was bad. I told my supervisor, I'm sure he heard it somehow, but I didn't make an issue out of sure. it. I just said, this is what happened and I didn't appreciate it. There's there's definitely uh, a balance, right? With yeah. like, he could have said far worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and again, in his mind, he was offering a compliment. Um, so yeah, very, and I could keep going, man. I got more of these stories. <laughs> that, that that's another podcast, right? Like, things that were said to me said, by things old that happened dudes. in the eighties and nineties in the workplace. Oh, so I really, um, when we were doing our research for the podcast, I came across the piece that you'd written on the on the website. You know, holding yourself accountable. Um, you know, for your firm's DEI progress, and I really appreciated your leadership and not only putting together, you know, the DEI. DEI ethos, if you will, you know, but also that you went so far as to create a summer internship program, which I love me an internship program. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you had the opportunity to connect with the interns personally, you know, what did your team gain from working with them? You know, how do you hope to grow the program in the years to come, et cetera? Um, yes, it was, it was the first year we did a formal program. We'd had interns before. Most of them were grad students from Georgetown or Hopkins. And so a little different, um, you know, because they've had a couple years work experience generally as well. This was the first time that we had undergrads and we had them from Virginia Tech and from uh, VMI. And um, we had six, which was a lot for us, you know, a company that only has about 60 employees. Um, but it was terrific. The team really, my team really engaged. They, they, each of the interns had a mentor. So um, they had somebody to, you know, provide them guidance and direction. They were assigned, each of them, I think, were assigned two projects to work with. Um, and they got guidance from their project leaders as well as their mentor. We had them do a capstone project at the end. And sadly, I had COVID that week. So I, I had to dial in. I was so sick went during, the, um, during the capstone. So I not only had to dial in, I was like, fever of 103. So I felt awful because I really wanted to be there um, for the interns um, captions, but they all went well. And for at least what I heard on the debrief. <laughs> and I did get to see the three Hokie interns last fall when I was on campus, I took them out to lunch and I'll hopefully be able to do that again uh, in a few weeks when I'm back on campus. That's so great. Um, you know, as we've been talking, you've given some wonderful advice but I'm curious to know what advice you might share with some of the women Hokie engineers here, especially since we know this is a demographic that is skewed in our college. 
I myself, one of my best friends that I've made here is in engineering, and I know she would love to listen to this podcast and hear what you have to say. Um, so I think it's fascinating that when I was in school in the 80s, it was about an average of 16% female in the engineering. Uh, that was, I think, nationwide. It might have, I don't know, I think Virginia Tech's always followed pretty closely to the national average. Yeah. Um, and the national average is maybe 23% and Virginia Tech would be 22. Yeah. My son goes to Purdue and I think it's even less there for women in engineering. Um, so I'm shocked that after 30 decades, that's all the progress we've made. Um, one thing that I, my company did some research for, we do quite a bit of work with science and engineering um, clients. And one of the projects was on the future of STEM talent. So we were sort of digging back into not just college engineering or sec or grad school, but even um, secondary school and trying to find out what was happening to the demographic. And the studies pretty much show that if, that women and minorities often drop out of the math ladder um, around eighth grade. And it's at that decision oh, really? point where the standardized testing has happened that places them in high school that they're either on the advanced calculus track or they're not. And if they're not on the advanced calculus track, they're not gonna get exposed to even engineering school options because they're not gonna also get exposed to the AP Chem or physics and other you know, AP math and science classes around that. So, so that her seventh, eighth grade is such a critical point in time for girls and um, minorities that they do not drop out of the math, advanced math curriculum. And I would say for anyone that has a younger sister or cousins, or I still connect it to their high school or their junior high school, do whatever you can to encourage girls and, and, and boys, but girls in particular and minorities to stay on that advanced math track and to put themselves in it and, and have their parents push them in it. Because again, they're not even going to get exposed to the options. And so if we're not looking all the way back, we're never going to be able to change the demographic of, of the women engineers. And the reality is I think um, women as leaders in technical fields, it is rare, but I also think women offer a different problem-solving mechanism. They're, they they tap into intuition in a different way. They tap into relationships in a different way than than men. And I that sounds probably gender biased, and I don't mean to be over categorically, you know, gender biased here. Um, but there is a different lens that many women use when they're approaching problem sets. And, and we need that kind of diversity when we're solving very hard problems of the world, not just technical ones. And I have been dying to ask you about this since we started talking today. Um, I noticed that you have a certificate de cuisine from Le Cordon Bleu. Yes. And I was so curious to know, like, Where did what I up with from? that? <laughs> you know, it is, I mean, obviously. It is funny. I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the creative side of me that um, I knew I had as a kid and then I lost it, particularly in school and in my young career. And it's been something that I, you know, whether it's cooking or writing or, or whatever, it's, it's definitely a part of my brain that is underserved. And I've always had a um, cooking fascination and uh, I've been cooking my whole life, like since I was a kid. And I took a uh, midlife retirement. I took a sabbatical in 2015 and went to Paris to go to the uh, 
the Le Cordon Bleu and get my certificate to cuisine. And it was fascinating. I was the oldest person in my class because I was in my mid forties and I hung out with 18 and 19 year old young women. I was literally like their mom, but I hung out with them and we'd party after class. <laughs> and, and then, and usually I'd go back to my flat around midnight and they'd still go out, you know, to the club. I was going to say, I was like, did you keep up no, Maria? No, no, no. <laughs> I did not. I definitely went back to my uh, apartment um, much earlier than they did, but it was, it was a total blast. It was so hard. It was fun being like a college student again, having to walk two blocks to do my laundry at the laundromat, which I don't even think college kids have to do anymore, but in Paris, <laughs> you have to do that. Um, so it was, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. I, uh, I still cook in homeless shelters. Um, usually I'm cooking for anywhere from 40 to 60 people at a time. And it is a wonderful outlet for me. Um, yeah, I pretty much use, I, I love the idea of just sort of like, okay, what do we have? And then making something pretty amazing out of it. Yeah. It sounds like chopped. You know what? There's, awesome. there's a couple of shows that my friends have said, you got to go on. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing reality. TV. <laughs> I'm sure at some point in your life, you said, I'll never go to Paris and look at you now. Oh, maybe, maybe now, now I want to go back and I actually want to go to, yeah. I want to go to school to study French and use that as that creative mm -hmm. outlet. Oh my gosh. I uh, hear uh, our uh, social media friends at Duolingo are kicking butt. So wow. <laughs> that's probably my one regret is all my math science. I never mastered a language and I really wish whether it was French or Spanish, I wish I would have actually mastered a language and, um, and kept up with it. That is yeah. awesome. I took three years of French. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for your time. We loved having you on the podcast. You are incredibly impressive and inspiring. <laughs> Seriously, where can folks connect with you if they've got questions or maybe want to snag your favorite pastry recipe? Oh, right. Um, <laughs> you can certainly reach out to me uh, and connect to me through LinkedIn. Perfect. I, Maria Bothwell, Toffler Associates. It's hard to miss. Um, <laughs> and and you know we'll we'll connect through there and i'm happy to talk about recipes <laughs> <laughs> that that's the the next podcast we'll start is uh engineers who cook right right <laughs> <laughs> so that's all for us uh join us next time as we get the skinny the down low the 411 on another engineering career This episode of Careers for Engineers is produced by Engineering Education at Virginia Tech. To find more information at enge.vt.edu.